I never ever thought that this is what I was going to be doing with my life. I always joke that I definitely wasn't playing with my Barbies and pretending that Ken was a narcissist. <laughs> like... Hey, Nick Nanton here, and thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. I want to make sure you don't miss a single episode of this show on YouTube. So before we continue, be sure to subscribe to our channel and ring the bell to get notified about our latest videos. You'll have the option to be notified for occasional videos or all of them. If you're on your phone, just go into your settings and switch on notifications. Thanks for watching. Hey everybody, Nick Nansen here. I'm excited to have a friend of mine here on for a repeat offender visit of my Now to Next podcast. I've got my friend Rebecca Zung here. Rebecca, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I, I'm doing well, thank you. I am excited uh, to have you back to talk about your brand new book. For those of you who haven't heard my first uh, interview with Rebecca or haven't been to her YouTube channel, she is uh, an attorney who specializes in negotiating with narcissists, which is a, unfortunately, a growing problem in our world. There seem to be more and more of them every day. Um, but there's nothing worse. I know we all feel this way. There's nothing worse than when we feel powerless in a situation or when we feel even worse, like, man, I'm doing everything I thought I was supposed to do and everything is going wrong. And it's not sometimes until a while later you realize like, wait a minute, it wasn't it wasn't me. It was them. And so, you know, taking the power back is a lot of what Rebecca covers. You should absolutely check out her YouTube channel, all of her books. Today, we want to talk about the book, Slay the Bully. So Rebecca, tell us what made you decide to write this book? Where, where did the impetus for this become? Yeah. Well, I mean, I never, ever thought that this is what I was going to be doing with my life. I always joke that I definitely wasn't playing with my Barbies and pretending that Ken was a narcissist you know, like as a kid, you know, um, I just, it really kind of came to me because first of all, I had a narcissistic business partner just a couple of years ago. And then I really kind of thought that I was going to do some digital courses on how to negotiate in general. And during COVID, I started doing some videos on how to negotiate in general because I couldn't practice law, you know, no, like everybody, we were all stuck in our houses. And then I did one little video on how to negotiate with a narcissist. And that was the one that everybody started, you know, watching. I really kind of came to it begrudgingly because I thought, oh, I don't want to be the narcissism queen, you know, but my husband was like, oh my God, you're really helping people. Cause we started to get all these messages, all these emails, all these direct messages where people were like, oh my gosh, you saved my life. I, I was going to commit suicide. And, and, you know, it, it was, it was so moving and I know how it was so really, really heart wrenching for me just a few years ago in dealing with that business partner, frankly, I was absolutely gutted in dealing with it myself. It, it brought back all these feelings of when I had been bullied as a kid, I'm, I'm half Chinese. And so, you know, I'd been bullied for being Asian as a kid and I, it, it kept me up at night. I was, you know, my head was spinning. I felt nauseous. It, it was very, very traumatizing. And so that's really kind of how I started doing the videos on YouTube. And all of a sudden, 
I started getting millions of views and now it's just not even three years later and I have 35 million views on my channel. So struck a nerve. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so that's how I ended up doing the book and that's where I am today. Cool. Uh, well, I mean, I think there's, there's a, an obvious, but really good lesson there that you, like you said, sort of begrudgingly, but you just follow the data. I mean, one of the nice things about things like YouTube or, I mean, TikTok, name it, is, you know, sometimes when a video goes crazy, you should, I mean, follow it and see where it can go because a lot of people would have just said, ah, I don't want to do that and, and wouldn't have done it. But obviously it's led to, I'm sure, some rich experiences for you and you're able to help people. So, hey, why not? But it's not always what we set up, set out to do at first. That is what we end up doing. Um, you you mentioned that you were half Chinese and you, you said in the, your parents got married in the 60s. Uh, when interracial marriages were illegal. So they got married illegally. Now, I got to ask the question because I, was, I wasn't here in the 60s, but was that in America? Like in the 60s, interracial marriages were illegal? Were they illegal in America? Uh, oh, yeah. So Loving versus the state of Virginia was the Supreme Court case that actually, you know, made it illegal to say that people of two different races couldn't, you know, it outlawed any kind of interracial um, uh, um, laws that said, hey, you know, all states can't, um, you know, any it banned, I'm sorry, I'm not saying, I'm not stating sure. this in a very um, uh, 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 great way, but it, it basically banned any laws in any states that disallowed um, marriages between people of of different races. Okay. So, um, it, but but that wasn't until 1967. Yeah, that's and, not that long ago. That's what's scary. Right. That's what's scary to me. That's not that Correct. long ago. And we right. obviously... my parents got married in 1965. Okay. And so in 1965, when my parents went to get married, they my dad was Chinese, my mom was American. And my father was a doctor. My father was an anesthesiologist. <clears throat> my mother was an operating room nurse. And they tried to get married actually in the state of Virginia. My father was a chief of anesthesia at a, at a, a hospital in Washington, D.C. And they happened to be living in Arlington, Virginia at the time. And they were not allowed to get married. So they had to get married in, the, in, in Washington. Wow, that's... That's crazy. All right. So you talk uh, about as something you didn't really acknowledge when you were a kid, but now that you're sort of helping other people, you started talking about your bullying experience. Tell us a little bit about that when you were a kid and, and sort of what happened. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in the seventies and eighties and, you know, in, in Northern Virginia, which you would think that outside of a, a major metropolitan area that there would be more Asians or something like that, but there really weren't in that time frame, especially mixed children. There definitely weren't. I mean, I would say that, you know, it, it, it's, there were, there was a time that there became an influx of, of um, Vietnamese, you know, um, refugees at one point, but that was when I was, you know, a little bit um, older or whatever. And I, I mean, I would say that it really, there was still quite a lot of racial prejudice 
at the time. And people didn't understand, oh, I was Chinese, and that there was a difference between Chinese or Japanese or Vietnamese mm. and all of that. And, you know, my middle name is Yukong. And people would say, what's your middle name? Is it King Kong? And, you know, things like that. And, and which is, you know, happens to be my grandmother's name. And, you know, I, at the time, I just wish that my middle name was something like Marie or Elizabeth or something like everybody else had. Of course, right. I love it now and I love my heritage. But at the time, you know, it was not something common. I mean, nowadays, people don't even see, you know, a Chinese and American person as, a, as an interracial marriage. It's right. so common. It's so common. Yeah. But people don't you know, at the time, it was a pretty bold thing. It was yeah. a pretty bold thing. My father was the first person of color to be, you know, allowed to um, join the Washington Golf and Country Club. It was a big deal. I remember, you know, that, that my mom was saying it was like a huge deal when he was allowed to, to join that. Wow. You know, so, I, I mean, I think that, we forget how far we've come in some ways, but, you know, we still have a long way to go with all of that. But I think that, you know, it, we, we do forget. And so, yes, I was bullied quite a lot for being Asian as a kid. Got it. And, and then, you know, you share some of that now in, in discussing working with narcissists. Tell us a little bit about, you know, in, in your business partnership, how you started, how you started figuring out. Cause I imagine in most cases, when you realize someone, most normal people who haven't dealt with a lot of narcissists, I would say they probably, first of all, you feel really bad about yourself typically. Like, what am I doing wrong? And at some point you have a realization that maybe it's not me. Is, is that how it happened for you? Or is it different than that? Yeah. And I do want to say, you know, I, and I, you know, there's a couple of things I want to interject about all of that. I had a very loving family, you know, on, on, on my, you know, my dad's side of the family, my, you, you know, I had a big Chinese side of the family, a big loving Chinese side of the family. So, you know, I had a, a I came from a, a, a loving family, you know, and so I, it's not like, you know, there were, there were different, it's interesting when you grow up in a certain way, like it, I had, I had become a very successful attorney. I had, um, one of the top family law practices in the country, but I did, I had gotten married at 19 at uh, the first time I had three children. By the time I was 22, I had gotten divorced. I had gone to back to law school as a single mom and remarried. I've been remarried now for 20, well, almost 23 years that we have a 20 year old daughter together. So I have four children, but I had built one of the top family law practices in the country in Naples, Florida. And, you know, I had a pretty good life. I had, I have a lot of friends a good life. And, and so, you know, by the time this business partner came along, who's a female, person, I was feeling pretty good about myself. You know, yeah. I mean, it's not like I was walking around with this complex of myself. Right. 
Yep. You know, and so I feel I, I want people to know that narcissists don't target people because they have so so little value. They target people because they have so much value. And I, it was so easy for this person to start all of a sudden, I, without even me even realizing it, I was starting to feel all these feelings of when I was traumatized and bullied as a kid, you know, all this stuff that I thought was long gone, these feelings again, were starting to come back up in me. And, you know, so they're that good. They are that good. And I, I share all of these things because I want people to know that it's, they're not alone. And, you know, that I, 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 I want, I try to be as vulnerable and real and authentic as I can, because I feel like it helps people to know. And, you know, I went back to my business coach, who's also sort of like my therapist, basically, you know, she, she has a lot of training in all of those, you know, areas. And, you know, I got the help and support that I needed because I think it's important that you do that. And, you know, I mean, it really, really threw me for a loop in a lot of, a lot of ways. And, and I want people to, to know that. I really want people to know that because the person that I dealt with was, you know, what, what they call a covert narcissist. To me, before that, and I, before I met her, I always thought a narcissist was a male, misogynistic, boastful, bragging, you know, fill the room, tell everybody how great they are you know, kind of a person. That's what I thought a narcissist was. I, and I think a lot of people think that. Yeah. So you had obviously a business coach who was very prepared to help you walk through this. What were the signs that you started asking questions so that other people could be like, oh, wait a minute, maybe, maybe I'm having that in my life. I'm not realizing it. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and I wasn't, and, and here's the other thing that I want to say. And these are very good questions that you're asking. I, I was a person who was very much willing to go to bat and advocate strongly, very strongly when it came to other people, you know, as an attorney, don't mess with me Yeah. for myself. I was more like, well, I don't know if I should say something. Should I say something? You know, I, I didn't want to be that person, you know, and so it was a very different thing when you're in a personal relationship with somebody, right? And so the signs were much more subtle. This person was, seemed very, very nice, very kind, very humble, uh, super likable, very likable to other people, y you know, tended to be much more passive aggressive. You know, covert narcissists are very, very passive aggressive. They'll say that they're going to do something and then they just don't do it. And, you know, and then when you go to ask them about that, about it, absolutely. I'm going to get to that. Absolutely. And then you're the one who's left going, do I say something? How many times do I ask about it? 
maybe it's just easier if I just do it on my own. Yeah. And then, and then you end up seeing things that they're doing and, and you go, oh, well, that doesn't seem right. Do I say something about that? And, and that seems off. Well, should I say something about it? And how do I broach that with them? And, and, and then you find out that they're having conversations or, or you know, and, and that seems wrong. And, you know, and, and they're just these little tiny death by a thousand cuts sort of things, right? And, and, and that's what you're dealing with with a covert narcissist, withholds as well. Like you find out that they didn't tell you something that they should have told you. And, and you think, oh, should I mention that they didn't say that? And, right. and, and, and then you, you kind of feel like, am I a bad person for thinking this? You, you know, and it, it, it's so subtle that you feel like, well, if I say something to someone, it's going to seem like I'm being petty. Does it seem like I'm being petty? And then it, when it, adds up and adds up and adds up over time, it ends up being where they just drive you really, really crazy. And yeah. Got that. Um, yeah. You, you jump into the first chapter, welcome to hell. Tell us about that. <laughs> That's a great place to jump in. Yeah. Well, you don't, nobody ever leaves a narcissistic relationship where you just go, um, I, I, it's, it's been nice knowing you. Good luck with everything. We're just going to break up and be friends. That doesn't happen. Yeah. No, it, it, they, you always end up like running, like with your hair on fire and you can't wait to get the hell out. You know, you just, and you need therapy afterward and, you're, you're traumatized and you feel like you've been a POW and it takes you time to get over it. And you almost feel like you, you may never, I mean, and then by the way, with the covert narcissist, when you finally feel like you can extricate yourself, that's when you see that mask come off from them. And it's like nothing else you've ever seen. And then that's what happened with me, by the way. What, what happens when, when, that when that supply comes ripping away from them, they become horrendous. Because you, once you figure them out or what, what, what causes that? Well, both. I mean, because you are providing something to them. I mean, they attached themselves to you. I mean, they're, they're pure hell to deal with, right? And, but they, they did attach themselves to you because you're providing value to them. And even though they basically are taking credit for your work and they're doing nothing and they're overly lazy and they're, you know, you, there, there's this underlying rage and you basically feel like they can't stand you. And there's all this awfulness to deal with. When you finally are like, I'm have had enough. I want to get out of this thing. They're they're seeing their train leave the station. Well, that's when they're not happy about it. So they become 
pretty awful. And so they start lining up their, what we call flying monkeys, which are people who are there, you know, it's a, it's a reference back to the Wizard, Wizard of Oz, Oz. Yeah, yeah. right? So it's people who are going to be on their side to make it seem like if it's a covert narcissist, like they're the victim, yeah. you're the bad person, because they want to make sure that it, they can skew the, the narrative. And, you know, they definitely want to make sure that, you know, they look like the, the victim or somehow that, you know, they, they, they want to make sure that they can take you down before you can take them down. Yeah, they want, they're the good guy, you're the bad guy, and they want everyone to agree, because they're narcissists, they want everyone on their side, and they want, then they're going to take you down, because how dare you question that they aren't doing everything beautifully like they say they are. I, right. I, I mean, it can't be just, hey, we parted ways, we're still friends, right. you know, which would, is the way I wanted it to yeah. be. It's like, no, you cut me, you took everything from me, and now you're trying to take advantage of me and turn people against me, and I'll show you. And I mean, the whole exactly. We heard the song exactly. and dance with an ex boyfriend, ex girl, like whatever. There's there's been someone in all of our lives where if we look back, like, oh, that's what that was, you know? Right, right. And 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 you know, I was naive enough to think, well, we'll just still be friends, and we can actually still support each other, and let's do it this way. But of course they, they're just incapable of doing it that way. It's just completely. Yeah, that was not to be. Uh, those of you just joining us as uh, Rebecca's on uh, her new book, Slay the Bully is coming out in the fall. I believe Rebecca, what do you have a date yet? October 3rd. October 3rd. All right. So everybody be looking for it, be watching for it. We're talking through some of the secrets now, not all of it, just some of it to share with you what you have to look forward to. You have a acronym it's called slay the bully and you have an acronym for slay so let's walk through what that that uh that acronym stands for yes so it stands for strategy leverage anticipate and focus on you and so strategy is the first thing that you need to do i mean a lot of people just are like let me just get straight to the leverage and i want leverage you know but you have to create a strategy first and that is what is your vision? Where is it that you want to go? And then creating your action steps. So many times people are just, you know, filled in the, you know, they're stuck in the mire of the defensiveness of it because you're, when you're dealing with a narcissist, you're just so stuck in, you know, being beat up and what are they doing and the finger pointing and that whole thing. But you really do need to be a little bit more on the offensive and what, you know, where are you going? What is it that you want? And then creating some action steps around that. So so step, step one is essentially realizing I think probably number one, this isn't going to end well. So as much as you want to try to end it peacefully, like a normal person, like let's just go ahead and create the strategy that we're pushing the nuclear button and what, and, and what do we want to happen ultimately? Because we're going to have to swim through the fire while we push a nuclear button. So let's make sure our, uh, our objective is very clear to begin with. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times people are like, I just, I don't want to fight. I just want this to be amicable, you know, and this is kind of hearkening back to what I was just saying, which is if you don't want to fight, if you want it to be amicable, then you have to create leverage. You have to have a strategy. You have to figure out how you're going to, you know, do this in a way that's super strategic and, and having leverage because they will as much, even if they say 
they don't want to fight and they want they don't want to have you know all of that it, it ain't gonna be like that i'm yeah, just that's just part of the right act now. right that's part of the act so so you create the strategy of what you want out of it tell me about what kind of leverage do you get i mean it basically going on the offensive right so you're just gonna decide i'm going all in to make this end and what kind of leverage do i have i mean what, what are you asking there well so this is the thing that i always tell people and and you this is what i call the key to the kingdom as far as winning it, and it, with narcissists most people have this massive huge myth that narcissists just want to win and that is actually wrong that is actually false because it, they do want to win but that is not the only thing that they want so there's a concept called narcissistic supply and that is what feeds a narcissist's ego but what I have figured out is there's actually two different tiers to narcissistic supply. There's what we call diamond level supply, what I call diamond level supply, which is how they look, how they look to the world. And, you know, that's anything around how they look to the world, money, prestige, good friends, all of the, the thing around how they look. And narcissists will protect and defend that at any cost, at any cost, no matter what. And because if the truth gets out, right, it's just a house of cards because if anyone else realizes it, that they're being like, everyone's being played by the person. Right. So it makes sense. Like, wait, if I let one person get a chink in my armor, I'm screwed. Like the whole, the whole world will know that this, I'm not who I say I am. I, I imagine. Right. I mean, that is their, I mean, at any cost, they'll, they'll protect and defend that at the cost of their relationships, the cost of relationship with their children, honestly. Yeah. And then there's what I call coal level supply. So there's diamond and then there's coal. So coal level supply is actually like the, what I call the dark underbelly of, of, of narcissistic supply, which is manipulating you, uh, controlling you, de you know, degrading you, all of those other things that narcissists also love. They also enjoy, they get a high from it. And so when, people are going to negotiate with narcissists, they forget about that form of supply. And so while they do love to win, they also enjoy that aspect of negotiating as well. So they're not going to readily give up that piece of it unless you've got something that threatens that other form of supply. So when you're building leverage, you have to think about how can I potentially threaten that other form of supply? Because if you don't potentially figure that out, then they're never going to let you go because that form of supply is something that they'll continue to get from you forever. They will take themselves down to take you down. They will continue to spend money it's the game. It's the game. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the never-ending feedback loop there that is actually what drives them. So that makes sense. All right, A, for anticipate. Tell us what you got to do with anticipation. So there's a number of different things with this. I, first of all, if you know what kind of narcissist you're dealing with, you can actually plan. You can actually strategize. So covert narcissists, are more likely to um, line up flying monkeys. They're more likely to, um, you know, start seeding things m much longer ahead of time. They're 
you know, they're, they're, they're not going to be your stalkers. They're not going to be the ones to um, ignore court orders, you know, out in public because they want to look good. They want to, they, you know, they're, they're more the, the ones that are doing things kind of under the radar, right? The grandiose narcissists are going to be the, the ones that are going to be much more out there doing things, right? Whereas your malignant narcissists are going to be your stalkers. They're going to be the ones that are, you know, tending to be um, the, the, you know, there's an overlay of being a sociopath with a malignant narcissist. So a malignant narcissist is going to be the one that'll accuse you of being a child molester, even if you're not. They don't even care if they'll, they'll ruin your career or whatever. Mm -hmm. So if you know what kind of narcissist you're dealing with, you can actually start to plan. You can anticipate a little bit more. And you can also, there's a lot of ways that you can also, what I call, you know, making a plan stand. You can, you know, there's a, a whole lot of things that you can do because you know that they're going to try to bait you. You know that you're, they're going to try to get supply from you. So under the A in the book, I give lots and lots of suggestions on how to actually plan and be two steps ahead of the narcissist. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's essentially you're preparing the reader to play chess, right? I mean, so you gotta, you gotta predict the move. The only way to win is to just know it's going to get bad create leverage, predict what's going to happen. So you're not surprised or taken like, you know, your normal human feelings don't take over because you, you already project, you've already anticipated this. And then why you say is for your position. And, and so that's sort of the final piece here. Yeah. Why is actually my favorite part in a lot of ways, because it's two different parts. It's tactical, which is you um, being on the offensive, but it's also your mindset. It's also, you know, 99% of winning is you knowing that you're going to win before you even show up. And it's also you breaking free. It's also you becoming the most powerful version of yourself. You know, I always say that, that you know, there's always going to be narcissists in this world and they're always going to be toxic. But once you become the most powerful version of yourself, then who cares? Because the truth of the matter is that they'll just be like air. They'll be like a gnat flying around once you become the most powerful version of yourself, because they're actually way more afraid of you than you are of them. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, so yeah, once look, um, I imagine most narcissists probably play to people who, whether they consciously do it or subconsciously people, they think they can play off of because they recognize common behaviors. And once they see somebody who doesn't play that game, they probably avoid them like plague. That's so, exactly right. Yeah, That's exactly yeah. right. Now we've discussed some narcissistic behaviors, but what's the actual, how, how would you define what a narcissist really is? So I like to define it in terms that people can really understand, which, uh, you know, lay terms, which is a person who just feels totally and completely empty inside. And I, I make sure that I say feels because we all have inherent value as human beings. And we, I mean, we are all from the divine and we all have inherent value. I'm talking about people who feel totally and completely empty inside. And because they feel that way, they feel like they need to get all of their value from external sources. And, you know, it's, it's an, it's a, it's a, 
never ending battle for them. So it's like a sieve. It's like a dark hole. Inside. Yeah, there's nothing there unless you put it there. So, I mean, I guess like I would, I, I, I want to know, I think this is true. There's someone who I know who they happen to post a lot on Facebook and it's a lot of drama. They post all the time or when they do, when they do something good for somebody, they post it. When they buy Starbucks for the person in line behind them, they post it. It's like, like literally, I feel like they don't feel like anything they do in life has value unless it has a lot of likes on it. Would that be, uh, would that? Yeah, I mean, up? that's probably the case. And, and, and then it's coupled with the fact that they aren't able to feel any empathy for anybody else. And the reason mm -hmm. why is because, you know, it, it's like if, if you're in complete and com total survival mode at all times and, and you feel like you can't breathe or you don't have oxygen or whatever, it's because it's because you, that, that, that's the reason why you can't have any empathy for anybody else is because you're in survival mode at all times. Is this learned behavior? Is this sort of like a condition you're born with? Like, how does that work? Do we know? Yeah, it's because it, it was a result of trauma. I mean, I just finished my book, you know, as you know, so it was as a result of trauma when they were children. And when you are in fight or flight, we know that the brain dumps a bunch of chemicals into, you know, um, into the brain. So it's, you know, epinephrine and cortisol and adrenaline and all of those things. And when that happens, you know, the limbic system takes over. And when that happens over and over again, the brain becomes, you know, permanently damaged as a result. And so as a, as, as adults, what happens is the, the narcissist brain uh, has something that we call narcissistic injury, which is really that the uh, limbic system takes back over when the narcissist is presented with something that they perceive to be as, you know, any kind of stimuli that causes them to make them feel like they're slighted in any way or makes them feel like they are in survival mode again. So, you know, it could be a tone, it could be a look, it could be anything, but that narcissistic injury gets triggered and then that narcissistic rage can come flying out. And then that, when that happens, that limbic system part of the brain takes back over and they literally are not in control of themselves at that point. And that is why you cannot negotiate with them in the same manner that you can with a regular reasonable person because they're not thinking in a rational, rational, reasonable person way. Can these people be healed of this if they become aware of it and want help? I mean, or is it just sort of stuck? Well, I mean, I have interviewed several psychologists and psychiatrists, and all of them have said that it's very, very rare. And the reason why is because it takes a person who is self-aware, who wants to get help who wants to take responsibility for their actions, who says, yes, I need help. And that is 
completely counter to this personality type. And that's why it's difficult. You know, it's the only time that they do get help is if they are in, you know, complete collapse or something is, you know, really bad, you know, many bad things have taken place in their life. And they say, yeah, you know, I do need to make a massive change, but it's pretty rare. Yeah, it makes makes sense. All right. So you talk about one thing in the book about love bombing. Tell us about what that is and and how that works. Yeah, it's an interesting um, uh, name or title, whatever you want to say for that particular phenomenon, because it, it has nothing to do with love. It really is just manipulation. But it's the the way that a narcissist begins a relationship. So it's kind of, it's really conditioning is the way I kind of think of it. It's um, how they start off by basically appearing charming and, uh, you know, charismatic and, and they are really basically mirroring you. Uh, They're actually Mm -hmm. very, very good at reading people and appearing to be perfect for you. And showing up in a way that makes you seem, makes them seem like, where has this person been all my life? And they sweep you off your feet and they know how to say the exact right thing so that it seems like you're long lost soulmates. And, and this is business or personal, by the way. And so, you know, uh, the, the one thing that, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about how it takes 10,000 hours to achieve mastery at something. And narcissists have been reading people as a mechanism of survival since childhood. And so one of the things that they are very, very good at is reading people. And um, so love bombing is the way that they, it, it, well, and, and I do want to say another thing. It is something that they also go back to throughout the relationship. It is, mm-hmm. you know, it is something they also, it's also sometimes called future faking or, uh, you know, there are other terms for it during the relationship. But it is something that they return to throughout the relationship when needed, when needed. When things aren't going the way they want them to go and they realize that that's how they trapped you in the first place, probably. Exactly. And start exactly. doing that again. Well, yeah. you've got a lot of things people are going to enjoy from the book. Uh, trauma bonding, gaslighting, uh, word salad, ghosting, future faking, faux-pologies. Uh, you got an awful lot for them to, to find out. Rebecca, the book's coming out in October. Um, it's going to be awesome. I can't wait till the world gets to read it. Slay the Bully. Um, how can people find you between now and then to keep up with when the book's coming out as well as to learn more from you? Yeah, so I do want to mention if people go to slaythebully.com, they can pre-order it. And if they pre-order it uh, pretty soon, the uh, publisher has actually generously said that everybody will get a an entire copy of the manuscript early. Awesome. So you won't have to wait till October to actually be able to read it. And we are also going to be giving close to $400 in bonuses, including a free course and all kinds of really cool things. So if you pre-order it, you will get 
lots and lots of really cool things, including an entire copy of the manuscript. So definitely go to slaythebully.com to check those out. And you can find me on my YouTube channel, and that is youtube.com forward slash Rebecca Zung. And, uh, oh, sorry, Rebecca Zung ESQ. And uh, by the way, I should mention that the foreword for the book was written by Chris Voss, who yeah. you did an amazing documentary with. So uh, we, we forgot to mention that. Yeah, Chris is a good friend and, and a mutual friend. So yeah, I love that. And uh, Chris is the real deal. So that's awesome. So slaythebullet.com. And uh, I can't wait to uh, continue watching. And uh, thanks for joining us here, Rebecca. And everybody, please make sure you check out her book, her YouTube channel, everything else. And we'll see you next time on Now to Next. Thank you again, Rebecca, for joining us. Hey, Nick Nanton here, and thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. I want to make sure you don't miss a single episode of this show on YouTube. So be sure to subscribe to our channel and ring the bell to get notified about our latest videos. You have the option to be notified for occasional videos or all of them. If you're on your phone, just go into your settings and switch on notifications. Thanks for watching.